Hello, world, and welcome to the In My Footsteps podcast. I am Christopher Setterland, coming to you from the vacation destination known as Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and this is episode 72. This episode is going to start off with a trip back to the golden age of Cape Cod nightlife as I talk about the history and wild times of the Guido Murphy's nightclub from Hyannis. We're going to take a road trip to the central Connecticut town of Groton. We're going to go way, way back in the day and talk about the giant pizza wars of the early 1990s. We'll stay in the 90s for a brand new top five about the top five passing fads of the 1990s for some embarrassment. And of course, there'll be a brand new This Week in History and Top 5 all coming up right now on episode 72 of the In My Footsteps podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is almost summertime. The heat is starting to build even here on Cape Cod. I've got a box fan in the window to keep it relatively cool. Hopefully, it's not too hot wherever you are. And if it is, hopefully, you're finding a way to stay cool. Hit the beach, hit the pool. Sit under a shady tree, whatever you got to do. Thank you all for tuning into the podcast, taking me with you wherever your summer takes you. I hope that this summer will be fun and full of good times for all of you. I am cautiously optimistic and nervously excited, if that's a good combination. I've started working on some structural changes and rewrites for my Lady of the Dunes book as I get it closer to the submission to publishers and agents. I'm really lucky to have some contacts in high places that have helped me to get in touch with people that probably normally I wouldn't have a chance of talking to, but they have helped me to hone and revise the layout of the Lady of the Dunes book. It's going to be even better than I thought, but of course, Anytime there's something good like this, you've always still got to put the work in. Even though you can kind of see the big picture of where it's taking you, you still have to actually do it. Just to pick up from where I was last week, happy what will be late birthday to my brother Matt. I wished him one last week. Happy birthday to one of my oldest and dearest friends, John, and to my young cousin, Sarah. You're still the young one, even though Keith is younger. And anyone else out there who's listening that has a birthday last week, this week, next week, happy birthday to everybody. (laughs) I always feel like I'm leaving someone out anytime I wish birthdays or thank people for things, but that's just how I am. This has been one of those times with the recent birthday, the end of last month of my oldest niece, Kaylee, and my brother, Matt, and one of my oldest friends, John, where you start to really look back at the quote unquote good old days and sort of wonder where the time went, and time goes fast. I was editing this full-length VHS tape that was of my niece Kaylee when she was probably 10 months old as kind of a gift so she would have that with all of us in it and different scenes from Cape Cod. And it's weird because I'm filming it, and it seems like yesterday where I can remember all these things as I was filming them. And then you look at the date, and it's 22 years ago. And it's like, where in the world did the time go? This is my roundabout way of just saying to enjoy every day and enjoy all the people you have while you do, because you just never know. That's how I usually end the podcast, but it was fresh in my mind. But speaking of enjoying every day that you can, that leads us into our top story as we go back in time to the glory days, the golden age of Cape Cod nightlife, 
and one of the most famous slash infamous spots on the Cape. I joke that names will be changed to protect the innocent, but who am I kidding? All of you that went to Guido Murphy's back then probably were too drunk to remember you were there. But let's share a little bit of the history of Guido Murphy's nightclub in Hyannis coming up right now on episode 72 of the In My Footsteps podcast. Oh boy, this is going to be a fun one to share as we go back to the golden age of Cape Cod nightlife. For those of you not from Cape Cod or have never been to Cape Cod, Guido Murphy's was a popular nightclub in the west end part of Main Street in the town of Hyannis, which is like the center of Cape Cod. So there's the backstory of it, but let's just dive into the story itself. The west end of Main Street in Hyannis has seen its share of legendary night spots. From the original King, the Panama Club, in the era of World War II, to current establishments keeping the bright lights shining. This area has been continuously jumping for nearly a century. Perhaps no other spot epitomized the raucous nights of the West End like Guido Murphy's. Long before it was a popular night spot, the building at 615 Main Street housed the Hyannis Theater. Originally, the three parcels of land were home to the dwelling of Albert Bacon as well as a storefront. The family sold the land and the house was demolished to make way for a new theater. The storefront remained, though. The first theater opened in 1919, but did not gain traction until a second theater opened on the spot in 1923. The land on the corner of Main and C Streets housed not only the theater, but also two stores at ground level, including the beloved St. Clair's Candy Shop in the 1920s and apartments on the second floor. The multi-use aspect of the building would be a recurring theme throughout its history. First run by George Moore, the Hyannis Theater built a legacy over half a century in business, but the second life of the former Bacon family property may have been equal to the first. In the late 1970s, the entire property became known as the West End Marketplace, an indoor marketplace with several shops and food outlets. It was during this era that 615 Main Street was joined by the neighboring building at 16 C Street. Once this move was made, it was time for the property to take on its most famous or infamous form. In 1979, the former Hyannis Theater was christened Guido Murphy's and an icon of Hyannis's Main Street was born. Upon its entry into the Cape Cod culture, Guido Murphy's seemed much like any other restaurant and bar. It was dark yet inviting and served a regular menu of food to entice hungry and thirsty visitors alike. What made the establishment unique during its infancy was its reliance on the fictitious Guido Murphy himself. The menu had items centered on a mix of Irish and Italian cuisine. One could sample unusual tastes such as corned beef and mozzarella cheese quiche, a corned beef sandwich grilled with cheese and bacon, known as the Cousin Clancy from Chelsea, and Don Mangatuti's Turkey and Mortadella, a high-quality sibling to bologna. There was also a Guido Murphy signature drink that mixed amaretto and Irish whiskey. In 1981, the fledgling establishment was bought by brothers Frank and Tony Viola, who would take Guido's to the next level. 
They created Guido Murphy's back room with the entrance through the C Street property, and this spot would gain an identity all its own. The lines to get into the back room were often so long that it became wise to arrive early and get your hands stamped, allowing access for the rest of the night. With an outdoor bar and an upstairs balcony, commonly referred to as the holding tank, the back room at Guido Murphy's became the place to be and to be seen. So popular was Guido's that underage partygoers would scale the neighboring building in order to drop in on the second floor of the back room. By 1984, Tony Viola had purchased adjacent property for parking to ease congestion in the area as patrons wandered out into the streets en masse upon leaving, and obviously some of them pretty inebriated. The nickname The Snake Pit seemed appropriate for Guido Murphy's back room, according to those who frequented it, as there was often barely enough room inside for one to raise their drink to their lips. The popularity of Guido's eventually led to complaints by neighbors, which then caught the eye of the state's Alcohol Beverage Control Commission and its Operation Last Call. During the initial crackdown by police against drunk driving, Guido Murphy's had the second highest number of arrests on record for the Cape, behind only the Compass Lounge. Complaints of noise, public urination, and overall rowdiness after hours meant that the popular night spot had a bullseye on its back from then on. Many nights, a police cruiser was parked out in front in anticipation of what was to come. From then on, there was a continuous battle between the Violas and the town of Barnstable, as the town wished to alter the closing time from 1 a.m. to 11 p.m. to thwart as much of the late-night trouble as possible. The Violas kept up efforts to stop the problems internally. They admitted that earlier closing times would severely cut into their bottom line. Finally, in the early 1990s, the town won, and Guido Murphy's hours were cut back. As predicted, business suffered. In 1996, the establishment underwent a bankruptcy reorganization, which led to the decision to change part of the building into a fine dining restaurant while maintaining the back room. Shortly thereafter, the Italian spot Amici's was born. No longer seeing it as a troublesome spot, the town then reinstated the original later closing time of 1 a.m. However, an inspection in 1998 revealed that Amici's looked and felt much like Guido Murphy's. When management petitioned the town to change the name back to Guido's, the town agreed and then immediately slashed the hours back to 11 p.m. So it was a smooth move to say they were becoming a fine dining restaurant, and then once they got their original hours back, they just pressed a button and the walls all turned inside out and it became Guido's again. It's just, it's too funny to not be true. The financial implications, though, of the changing of the hours again caused the Violas to file for bankruptcy in 1998. They weren't done, though. They had one last ace up their sleeves. In 1999, the establishment was renamed Guido Murphy's Cabaret, complete with bikini dancers, quote-unquote, and blacked-out windows. <laughs> Towing the line very close to being a strip club, this included bringing in strippers from a Florida club to dance there. 
Guido's finally was laid to rest by the town when its license to operate was taken away in August 1999. The infamous Guido Murphy's was dead. The legacy of Guido Murphy's is just parties and drinking and rowdiness. So beloved by people of my age, a little older, and especially my parents' generation. But the legacy of Guido's left a bad taste in the mouths of the town's residents. And for several years after... It was just nothing there at the west end of Main Street. The property was eventually sold to Jack Hines, who remodeled the building into condos. But it would take more than a decade after that for another night spot, kind of, Seaside Pub on Main, which opened up in that same spot. It was open until COVID basically shut it down. But the lasting legacy of Guido's is one of the most popular night spots that the Cape ever saw. You can ask anybody that frequented it if they were lucid enough to remember. By the time I was legally of age to go to a bar slash night spot, Guido's was already in bankruptcy. So it was kind of one of those places that I would have seen that it used to be something, but it wasn't anymore. But did any of you out there listening go to Guido Murphy's? <laughs> do you have any crazy stories? I can always change your name to protect the innocent if I do a follow-up. But that was a look back at one of the true kings of Cape Cod nightlife, Guido Murphy's in Hyannis. All right, it is time for another road trip. This time we are hopping across the border of Connecticut, the eastern part of Connecticut, to the seaside, the riverside town of Groton. When it comes to these road trip segments, thus far, I think I've been to almost every place that I've mentioned. I'm sure there will come a time when I get to spots that I haven't visited yet, so it'll give me the inspiration to go there. But when it comes to some of these places, there are stories of my time there that are just too good to not share. And some of them I don't even remember until I start researching the town for the podcast. And that's what happened with Groton. So the nuts and bolts of Groton, the population is just over 38,000 people. It's located on the Thames River in between Stonington and New London. Mystic is in there. So the Mystic Seaport is right next to it. It's located 105 miles southwest of Boston and about 130 miles east of New York City. So it's kind of centrally located as far as Boston and New York goes. For others besides me, Groton is known as the submarine capital of the world. And that's because it's home to General Dynamics Electric Boat. And this company is a major contractor for submarine work for the United States Navy. And that's as good of a place to start as any when it comes to Groton. You can visit the Submarine Force Library and Museum at 1 Crystal Lake Road or at ussnautilus.org. And the reason the website is named that is because the museum grounds are home to the Nautilus, which was the world's first nuclear-powered vessel. They've got guided tours, they've got scavenger hunts, they've got something for everyone if you're interested in submarines. It's right on the Thames River, so it's a perfect place to start if you've never been to Groton and you hear it as the submarine capital of the world. You might as well start there. 
I am a sucker for old forts. If you've heard me talk about Fort Revere and Hull, Groton is home to Fort Griswold, which is located at Park Avenue and Monument Street. This fort is known for a battle that happened during the American Revolution in 1781. It was a massacre led by the traitor Benedict Arnold. It's got a beautiful view overlooking the Thames River. And if you like classic old forts, Revolution era, Civil War era, you'll love this and the history. Check out fortgriswold.org to find out more about the history of the fort and the current efforts to maintain it and make sure that it stays around for the next generation. An interesting fact and something that I liked was directly, almost directly across the Thames River in the neighboring town of New London, Connecticut, is Fort Trumbull. And they don't look exactly alike, but they're very similar. So there's two forts that you can, they can see each other. And I'm sure eventually on the podcast, I will do a segment on New London, Connecticut, But since I did New London, New Hampshire last week, I was not going to do the same town name in a different state. At the end of Shore Avenue is Eastern Point Beach. It overlooks Long Island Sound, and you get great views of the ferries going to Block Island. But a big selling point, obviously for me, if you've heard this podcast, is there's a lighthouse out in the Sound, New London Ledge Lighthouse, which... From Eastern Point Beach, it's just under a mile out in the water. And it's only slightly closer if you were to go across to New London and take photos from Ocean Beach over there. The lighthouse looks like an old brick building, and it is purported to be haunted. I've yet to go out there and experience it, but that's what I've heard from people is that lighthouse is haunted. So if you want to go and get a tour and hear... The knocking by Ernie, who was one of the early lighthouse keepers. It's supposedly his ghost that haunts it. (laughs) Be my guest to go out there. There's also the beautiful Bluff Point State Park, which takes up most of the area between Long Island Sound and the Pocanoc River and Mumford Cove. It's more than 800 acres. It's great for hiking and just sightseeing, animal watching, photos for sure. The gates are at 55 Depot Road if you want to park and just walk and enjoy it. But I promised at the top of this segment a story that was pretty legendary as far as travel trips go, and I was not going to disappoint. Avery Point Lighthouse is located on the campus of the University of Connecticut at Avery Point. It's at 1084 Shenacosset Road. And it's public. You can go to it. It's not like you're trespassing on school grounds. I love this lighthouse because it's kind of a pinkish color. And it's shaped like I could only describe it as an old school Barbie castle. And so this was one of the highlights for me going to Groton. And this particular trip, I went with my buddy Steve, naturally, because lighthouse shooting, that's like right up our alley. You can get some pretty simple photos of the lighthouse, but me going there with my camera and wanting to get something that was different, I was looking for different vantage points of it. The lighthouse is right on the water. There's rocks. You could go down into the rocks and kind of get different views. And I remember going down into the rocks to get a shot looking up at the lighthouse from below. 
And I don't remember if my buddy Steve said, you know, kind of watch out down there. It could be slippery in the rocks. But if he did, I didn't listen. I went down there and I slipped in the rocks. And rather than brace my fall and risk damaging my camera, I cradled my camera. So I went down on my elbow and my ankle. So my ankle basically slammed into the rocks and I was down and I was hurt. But from there, from laying on my side, I took the photo. So there's a picture of the lighthouse from below. And all I can, every time I see it, I remember falling in the rock, slipping, and just taking the picture from down on my side. If you go there, be careful in the rocks. I can only say learn from my mistakes. Check out mysticchamber.org to get more information on things to see and do in Groton and Mystic Stonington, because like I always say with these, there's only so much I can share in the podcast segment without it going super long. So I pick and choose things I think you'll enjoy. There's plenty of places to stay to make it an overnight trip. When I was doing my research, I didn't really find any smaller mom and pop type hotels. They're all the big chains, which there's nothing wrong with those. That's where I usually would stay but nothing worth going out of my way to share and describe. And the same goes for restaurants. There's lots of places to go to eat. Check out Paul's Pasta Shop at 223 Thames Street. Any sort of, you know, Italian, if you like classic Italian food, pasta, the desserts, you can't go wrong there. They're also at paulspastashop.com. Go there, see the menu, see the pictures, and have your mouth water so that when you go there, you know what you want. If pasta's not your thing, check out the Shack Restaurant at 441 Long Hill Road and shackrestaurants.com. There are three locations in Groton, Waterford, and East Lyme. It's classic American food. A step above a diner, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Go there, check out the menu, see the pictures, just like with Paul's Pasta Shop. You go there, have some great meals, find a place to stay, then go check out the submarine museum, forts, the beaches, and of course lighthouses. You know where I lie on that. Basically centrally located between Boston and New York City, Groton, Connecticut has got so much to see. Riverside, Seaside, right on Long Island Sound. You won't be disappointed. Go there and check it out and let me know what you think. And I'll be back next week as we take another road trip to one of the amazing cities, towns, villages that the six New England states and beyond has to offer. This week in history, we are going back 40 years ago this week, June 11th, 1982, and the premiere of one of the best movies ever, E.T. in theaters. I think most people have seen this movie. If you haven't seen it, you've heard of it, you know what a phenomenon it was, directed by Steven Spielberg. But it's hard to explain just how big it was if you weren't there to experience it when it came out. So for those of you that had no idea what E.T. is, it was a science fiction movie about an alien that crash lands on Earth and he befriends a little boy named Elliot, played by Henry Thomas. It also stars a very young Drew Barrymore and Dee Wallace as the mother. 
and just the adventures of the alien E.T. getting used to planet Earth, but also his quest to phone home. The score is epic. It was created by John Williams, who did the Star Wars movies, so you can hear the music and imagine the movie. I was not even five years old when this came out, and yet I can remember seeing it at the drive-in. And I don't know if I saw it more than once. My mother would be the one to confirm that. We may have gone and seen it more than once. I think she said that it was easier to bring me and my sister Kate, who were the only two of us five that were born yet, it was easier to bring us to the drive-in to see E.T. to help us fall asleep than it was to watch TV at home. I didn't know until researching this segment for the podcast that the character of E.T., the idea of the movie, was based on an imaginary friend that Steven Spielberg came up with upon his parents' divorce. It just adds another layer to it. This movie was an event. It was more than just a film. There were preliminary plans for a sequel to E.T. where Elliot and his friends would get kidnapped by evil aliens and they would try to contact E.T. to save them. But Spielberg opted against it, saying it would just take away from the original film, that it should just be a standalone. Although in 2019, they did a like four-minute-long commercial Xfinity did that was kind of like a sequel with Elliot growing up and E.T. showing up at the holiday season. And this, this Week in History segment and the time capsule is going to kind of be E.T.-centric. We're going to stay with the same day, so June 11th, 1982, when the film was released, because obviously the number one movie in America was E.T., The film was an immediate blockbuster hit. It surpassed Star Wars as the highest grossing movie of all time. And it held that rank for 11 years until Jurassic Park beat it. It had a budget of $10.5 million and made about $793 million in the box office. When adjusted for inflation, it ends up being just under $2.4 billion that E.T. made. And when you factor in inflation, E.T. is the fourth highest grossing film of all time. E.T. was number one for six weeks when it first came out and then bounced back and forth between second and first place all the way through to December, ending up with 16 total weeks at number one, which was a record. It's 99% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and was nominated for nine Academy Awards, winning four. But there was more going on in the world of pop culture back June 11th, 1982. The number one TV show was Heart to Heart. The show starred Stephanie Powers and Robert Wagner as a rich, globetrotting, married couple that seemed to always find mysteries wherever they went. The show was on the air for five seasons and 110 total episodes. Despite the show being canceled in 1984, it was not over, as there were eight television movies made about Heart to Heart beginning in 1993. The number one song was Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. It was off of McCartney's album Tug of War and is a song about racial harmony and coming together with black and white representing the keys on a piano, but also races of people. The song spent seven total weeks at number one, 
The song was a massive hit, despite some people saying it was overly simplistic and sentimental. And this song kind of foreshadowed Paul McCartney eventually working with Michael Jackson for the other hit song, Say, Say, Say. And if you were around 40 years ago this week, June 11th, 1982, and you wanted to bring the arcade home, you could get yourself an Atari 2600 video game console system for $125 or about $375 when adjusted for inflation. And then you could use your Atari 2600 later in the year of 1982 to buy one of the worst games ever created, which was the E.T. video game for Atari. Majorly rushed and majorly overproduced. This game was an epic fail on every level. They tried to rush it out for the holiday season in 1982, and it was not good. So many cartridges went unsold that the urban legend for decades was that they buried a bunch in the desert in New Mexico. And that was one urban legend that turned out to be real. There were a whole bunch of unsold E.T. Atari games in a landfill. But that's going to wrap up another This Week in History and another time capsule all surrounding E.T., the extraterrestrial's 40th anniversary. Now we're going to jump up a decade for a brand new top five. Sure to bring embarrassment. Here we go with the top five 1990s passing fads to bring you some laughs and embarrassment if you were around back then. I was a teenager of the 1990s, and that decade holds a very special place in my heart. There is so much about it that I loved and that I love looking back on fashion, music, movies, and just growing up in life in general. Things that are different now that I wish were still the same as they were back then. That being said, the 1990s was not a perfect decade. And we're going to show some embarrassment here with the top five 1990s passing fads. Now, I'm not saying all of these things were bad. I'm just saying that they were really, really overhyped when they came out and then most disappeared off the face of the earth. And some are bad, too. But let's jump into the honorable mentions to kind of give you an idea where we're going with this. Honorable mentions for 1990s passing fads include torn jeans and flannel, neon-colored clothing, scrunchies, pogs, and troll dolls. And I love torn jeans and flannel, but it was definitely a passing fad of the 1990s. I can admit that. But there's the honorable mentions. Let's dive right into the top five. Number one is the Macarena. I bet you can hear the music now in your head. Oh my God, this song, this dance, it was everywhere from cool, hip, young people doing it to old, definitely not hip people trying to be cool and doing it. Every school dance, wedding, gathering, anything had this dance. Even at my orientation assembly at college, this was seen as a bonding thing for everyone to get up and do the Macarena, which, oh my God, it was so embarrassing. But there's no denying it was a huge hit. As much as I didn't like it and thought it was stupid, millions and millions of people liked it. Number two was hyper-colored shirts. Now, for those of you that don't remember these or know what these were, basically it was a shirt that would be a certain color, and if you were to 
touch it with a hot hand or sweaty hand, it would change the color of the shirt so you'd have like a handprint on it. The company Genera was the one that was behind this fad in the early 1990s, and it blew up. It became huge. They were a company from Seattle that came out with this product in the beginning of 1991. And it was more than just t-shirts. It was short sweatshirts, sweatpants. But the idea was it was heat sensitive. You touch it with something warm and it changed colors. Between February and May of 1991 alone, Genera sold $50 million worth of hyper-colored clothing. But the issue was that they were not ready for that much success and could not handle the output needed. And they went bankrupt only a year later. In 1992, hyper-colored clothing was done. Number three is button-fly jeans, which... I don't think I ever owned a pair of buttonfly jeans, but for a while, these were popular in the early 1990s. So technically, buttonfly jeans did not debut in 1990 when Levi's came out with them. They actually came out in the mid-1950s, but I guess they failed as a fad even back then. They come and go, and they still they come back again, but the idea was that instead of a zipper on the fly of the jeans, it was buttons, which... Even me at 12, 13 years old realized that it would probably be a bad idea if I had to pee really bad to undo three or four buttons rather than just pull a zipper down. So I'm 99% sure that I never owned buttonfly jeans, but my family would have to confirm that because I'm almost positive that I thought they were a stupid waste of time. Number four was Tai Bo. So Taibo is still around. It's a total body fitness aerobic workout. It starred Billy Blanks. He was the trainer. It was rapid fire punches, kicks, movements, full body movements to get you sweating, to get you working it up. It was everywhere on infomercials. So even if you didn't buy the video cassettes of the workouts, I know that if you were around in the 90s, you saw Taibo commercials and Billy Blanks. It got to a point where Jim started offering kickboxing classes that were very similar to Tai Bo, but since Billy Blanks owned the trademark on it, they couldn't call it Tai Bo. And that marketing, the infomercials worked. By the end of the 1990s, more than one and a half million copies of the Tai Bo workout videos had been sold. And finally, at number five on the top five 1990s passing fads, were the Reebok Pump Sneakers. These, I'm pretty sure I had a pair of. They got a lot of exposure at the 1991 NBA All-Star break in the Slam Dunk Contest when Boston Celtics player D. Brown was wearing his pumps. And the very first time he went for a dunk and he pumped up the little basketballs that were on the tongue of the shoe that I guess they would tighten the shoes around your feet so they'd have a better grip. Basically, he pumped up his shoes the first time and the crowd went crazy. And then he did it after every single dunk. So it was just like he'd step up, pump up his shoes and dunk. He won the contest, but by the end, it was like, okay, yeah, we see you're pumping your shoes up. After that, though, everybody wanted Reebok pumps if you played basketball or even if you didn't. Because it was cool to tie your shoes and then press the little basketball and have your shoes squeeze around your feet a little more. They were expensive, too. $170 a pair back then. 
which today is over $320 for a pair of sneakers. So that's kind of why they faded away. But now they're actually making a comeback. Reebok has released them again. So if you want to go get a pair of Reebok pumps and try to do a no-look dunk like D. Brown, you can do it again. But that wraps up the top five. Did you participate in any of these fads? The Macarena, hyper clothing, button-fly jeans, Tybo, or Reebok pump sneakers? Let me know. Shoot me a message. Tell me which ones you liked, if there are any that I missed, because there may be a part two of this coming up at some point, because there was a lot of good in the 90s and a lot of foolish and embarrassing, too. The early 90s was a great time for going out to eat fast food and chain restaurants, whether it was burgers and fries, fried chicken, or pizza. One big thing I noticed in that period of time was that was the time of the supersize, the large meals, especially at the fast food chains. McDonald's had their supersized fries, triple cheeseburgers. And being a kid back then, I could eat all that stuff and not worry about what it would do to me physically. But the burger chains were not the only ones that supersized their food in the early 1990s. Pizza places did it as well. And this is the subject of this week's Back in the Day segment, is the giant pizza wars of the early 1990s. I can't say for sure how this all got started or how long it lasted, but my memory of the giant pizza wars starts in 1993. Little Caesars pizza chain was the one to start this all off. They created the big, big cheese pizza was what they called it. What it was, was a pair of Detroit style pan pizzas laid together side by side. In total, it was 11 and a quarter inches by 22 and a half inches. You'd end up with 24 total slices. And when you bought this big, big cheese, it weighed a total of almost five pounds. I was trying to find out for this segment of the podcast. I believe we had a Little Caesars on Cape Cod in Hyannis. Now, it was either a small one inside Kmart. I don't know if we had a standalone, but maybe some of you that are my age and older might remember if we had a Little Caesars on the Cape because I never had the big, big cheese. I saw the commercials, but never had the pizza. Luckily, though, the other two that came out, I did have because other pizza chains saw the success of Little Caesars Big Big Cheese and they decided they could do it as well. So the other two companies that came up with their own giant pizzas were Pizza Hut and Domino's. There was the Bigfoot and there was the Dominator. Back in the early 90s, we had at least two Pizza Huts on Cape Cod. I thought there was one in Falmouth and one in Dennis. And obviously, there's like 50,000 Domino's everywhere. Pizza Hut's Bigfoot was the same dimensions as the Little Caesars. Big, big cheese, 12 by 24. And it came out in the spring of 1993. It was great for parties. You could get up to three toppings on it. And theirs was 21 slices. In order to try to top Little Caesars and Domino's, 
Pizza Hut did things like offering a free month of HBO if you got the Bigfoot or free rentals at Blockbuster Video, which back then was a big deal. Much like Little Caesars, this giant pizza only lasted a couple of years. I think there's only so many people that are willing to pay. I mean, I don't know. It was about $8.99, I believe, to order this. I don't know if that's with or without toppings. So when adjusted for inflation, it's like $17.99. So it's not that bad, but it's just a lot of pizza. So unless you're having a party, it's like you're going to end up with a ton left over. And I had it. It was good. There's a place in Yarmouthport on Cape Cod, Peterson's Market. It's a small place. They have a spot in there. It's RC's Pizza is their homemade one. And they make pizzas that are every bit as big as these ones were. And we've had family gatherings where you get one or two of those and it feeds like 15 people. So unless you had that many, these giant pizzas weren't going to do you any good. But that leads us to Domino's and their Dominator pizza, which was the third in the pizza wars. I don't know if they were third to the party, but they must have been because their pizza, the Dominator, was 30 inches long rather than the 24 inches of Little Caesars and Pizza Hut's Giants. And Domino's, they were the biggest pizza chain. I think they still are. But at the time, they had more than 5,000 locations, and they had ads everywhere. I know I had the Dominator at least a couple times. For those that have worked in kitchens before, the giant normal-sized cooking sheet pans, that's basically what a Dominator pizza looked like. It was monstrous. And I do enjoy Domino's pizza. I know there's some that don't like it, but I mean, there's a reason why they've got thousands and thousands of locations. So I enjoyed that more than the Bigfoot is incredible. It was all in early 1993. All three of these pizza chains came out with the giant pizza offers. And I believe these original incarnations, the big, big cheese, the Bigfoot and the Dominator. I think they only lasted a couple of years before they were gone. Much like the supersizing of fries and such with McDonald's where they kind of went back on that. It's the same thing. Plus, I think these places make more money if you make people get more pizzas individually rather than one giant one. So it's probably good business sense. If you go on YouTube, you can find the commercials from back then for these giant pizzas. Did any of you ever have any of those? Little Caesars one I know I never had. The other two, yes. And yes, I also had supersized fast food and triple cheeseburgers and all that. I long for those days. It was definitely an exciting novelty at first to have a giant pizza for a meal. Because anytime, especially in my family, we're a giant family. We didn't have tons of money. So going out to eat or getting fast food and such, it was a huge deal. It was a luxury. So getting a pizza that was basically the length of your dining room table to share was great because you knew you were going to get all your fill. Maybe you out there will remember better than me, but I don't think Little Caesars or Domino's ever made like giant pizzas like that again. Pizza Hut actually did. They did the Big Italy pizza and the Pan Normus. So I guess they figured that 
the other companies gave up on giant pizzas. They could just kind of corner the market. It's interesting when looking at what the largest pizza chains are in the United States currently. It is the same three that I'm talking about here. It goes Domino's, Pizza Hut, and Little Caesars in that order. But some of the other big chains we don't really have around here. We have a Papa John's, but we don't have Marco's or CC's, at least not close to Cape Cod. I'm not driving an hour and a half for pizza. Although I will be honest, my favorite fast food, I guess, is Panda Express, the Chinese food. And the closest one to me is, I believe it's well over an hour away. And I have driven there to get it. Although I do (laughs) kind of hide the fact that I'm driving there by saying I'm going to do a photo shoot in the area. Is there any fast food that you would drive a couple hours to get? Because I used to enjoy Quiznos subs. I did like Pizza Hut. We don't have either on the Cape anymore, and I'm not going to drive to go get them. Those giant pizza wars, that was something when I was doing research for back in the day segments, that was something that popped up. The Dominator popped in my head. And then I remembered there was the Bigfoot, and I had forgotten all about the Little Caesars Big Big Cheese. And it's just wild to think that these three major companies all competed with these (laughs) super giant pizzas. And I couldn't find any real sales records, but the fact that none of them lasted more than a couple years means that they were probably money losers. But did any of you have a big, big cheese from Little Caesars or a Bigfoot from Pizza Hut or a Dominator from Domino's? Do you remember it? What did you think of it? And what's your favorite pizza chain? I mean, if you're listening to this and you're from further away, you're not from New England, you may have a different view. Marco's, CeCe's, Papa John's, Sabaro's, any of those. Let me know. And maybe if we've got them near me, I'll go and check them out because I'm definitely a big fan of pizza. I just can't eat too much because my metabolism isn't what it used to be. Take that note, kids. When you get in your 40s, watch what you eat. Oh, it's terrible. And that's going to do it. That is going to wrap up episode 72 of the In My Footsteps podcast. Thank you, as always, to everybody who tunes in. You guys are obviously the ones that keep this going. There are times in my schedule that it gets kind of hectic and crazy, and it seems like I may not have time to record a podcast episode. But I do. I feel a duty, a responsibility to those of you that have stuck with me through now over 70 episodes of this. So I get them done and I do my very best to find topics that you will enjoy. And I've said it before, if any of you have ideas, things you want to hear about, shoot me a message, Christopher Sutherland at gmail.com. You can message me through all social media, Twitter, Instagram. I'm on YouTube. Check out the In My Footsteps podcast blog at blogger.com. I have a Facebook fan page for the In My Footsteps podcast that everyone can go and follow. If you try to friend me on Facebook on my actual real page, I will likely not accept because I only accept people I know in real life. But the fan page, everyone can come and join. Visit my website, ChristopherSetterland.com. That was created, is updated, and managed by my oldest friend, Barry Menard. I always say great graphic designer, but even better human. 
And the more I go, the older I get, the more I realize how lucky and blessed I've been to know him throughout most of my life. So I always want to give him a shout out. If you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee. Go to buymeacoffee.com. Find the In My Footsteps podcast page. Any donations go towards advertising for the podcast. But if that's not in the cards for you, the best way to support this podcast is by word of mouth, sharing links that I share, telling people about it, positive reviews on whatever platform you listen to on. Those mean more than any donations, to be honest. I'm hoping within the next few weeks to have a more concrete date for the release of my seventh book, Photographers America, Cape Cod Beyond the Dunes. That title may change. They have started the editing process, so it shouldn't be long. I'm thinking early fall. This book should be out, and I'll give you all a lot more information once it gets more concrete. I don't know anything about doing book events or things like that. It's a photography book, so... It would be easy to do PowerPoint presentations. It would just be photos. And here, go look at these places. So there may be a lot of those coming in the fall, winter, and spring of next year. Tune in next week for episode 73 of the podcast. I'm going to share the history of the scariest place I ever visited, Medfield State Hospital, and a little bit about my experiences there and why it's so creepy. We're going to take a road trip up north to the small town of Camden, Maine, one of my favorite places I've visited in that state. We're going to go way, way back in the day because it's been long enough now to talk about what it was like going on the internet in the 1990s. There's going to be a brand new top five that are going to be the top five scariest slash creepiest TV show theme songs. This comes straight from a couple of friends, Crystal and Adam, so that's... Like I said, if you have ideas for topics on the podcast, give me a shout. You never know when I might use them. But I really do appreciate all of you that tune in, all of you that connect with me on social media. I mention a lot about mental health and taking care of your own mental health, especially with this world that can be really crappy. It's like the worst it's been in my lifetime as far as being divisive and violent and ignorant with some people. So creating this little oasis, this little escape as far as this podcast goes and giving some of you a little bit of an escape is something I really take seriously as far as like a responsibility to give you a little bit of an escape for an hour a week. But take time for your own mental health. If it's listening to this podcast, if it's going for walks on the beach, if it's hanging out with old friends or family or something, do what you have to do to make yourself feel better to get through these rough times and I will keep on pumping out this content because I know that some of you do enjoy listening so I'll keep it going but remember in this life don't walk in anyone else's footsteps create your own path leave the biggest footprint you can in this world while you're here and enjoy those you have because you never know what tomorrow might bring Thank you for tuning in to episode 72. I'll be back next week with episode 73. I have been Christopher Setterland. This has been the In My Footsteps podcast, and I will talk to you all again soon.